Hey, welcome to the Kingdom Church Podcast. We're so glad you could join us. You're listening to the second part of our series, Counterfeit Gods. Whatever you're doing, wherever you are, sit back, relax. Here it is. So good to be in the house of the Lord. Uh, I have a really rich passage of scripture this morning I'm going to read. And uh, this, this passage of scripture is so rich, I could preach 10 sermons from it. Uh, now, originally, I was going to say, but I'm only going to preach one. Uh, however, as I was studying this week, I realized that uh, I can't do it in one week. So are you guys okay? This is going to be a two-week message. And you guys are coming back next week, right? Anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, Romans chapter 1, uh, part 1 of, of our message, starting in verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people... Are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in, sin, in their sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. As I said, pretty rich. Um, I want to call our message, and if you're taking notes, you can put a little part one beside it if you want, uh, but I want to call this message the sex trade the sex trade, and I'll explain that um, as, as we go along. So you guys can be seated. Can we clap our hands one more time? So glad you guys could all be here today. Uh, if you're new or visiting, my name's Harrison, and I'm just honored that you could be here today. Uh, we are in the second week of a series here at church that we are calling Counterfeit Gods. Counterfeit Gods. Just by a uh, round of some noise, anyone here part one? Anyone check out part one, Counterfeit Gods? Uh, what we're doing in this series is we are trying to expose and hopefully defeat some of the things that we worship that are not God, what we have been calling counterfeit gods. So uh, for anyone that did not see part one, go check it out online. But I'll give you a really quick, 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 quick. Give you guys a quick recap of uh, what we did in part one. So what we said um, kind of had a simple thesis. We said every single one of us serve something. Remember this? We all serve something. The question is this. Do you serve God or something else? Now, what we said is that you by no means have to serve God. There, there, there's nothing that says you have to, you must. But one thing that we said last week is that although you don't have to serve God, you have to serve something. You and I are created to serve. So if we're not serving God, we are going to serve something else. That is uh, what we called the counterfeit gods. And our definition, we said a counterfeit God is anything that promises to give you what only God can truly give you. That's kind of the quick recap. You guys all remember that? few people. Uh, again, if you missed it, man, go check it out online. Everything is there. Today, uh, so last week we were kind of broad, just, just opening the series up. Today and next week, we're going to get more specific. Uh, if you couldn't tell by the title today, I want to talk about the counterfeit God of sex. We're going to talk about sex, and I think it's so vital uh, that, like I said, we're going to need two weeks to really break it down and really understand it. So uh, just by, by kind of 
raise of hands or, or you can make some noise. Anyone ever made a bad trade before? At some point, all of us probably made a bad trade. Like I know, you know, when you're young, when you're little, you kind of trade all the time, right? At school, like you're trading lunch, trading food, trading toys, trading clothes. Back in my day, like trading Pokemon cards. Uh, you guys ever made a bad trade before? Right, and, and trading a lot of times, like it, it can kind of seem like something you do when you're younger, but like Facebook Marketplace has kind of brought it back a little bit, right? Anyone use Facebook Marketplace? Like you're able to make trades on Facebook Marketplace, like you can actually trade goods. But truth be told, even when you buy something, it's a form of trading, right? You're exchanging money for something else. And so now when we understand that, anyone made a bad trade before? Right? Um, I, I think of a time like on Facebook Marketplace when, when we moved into our house uh, last year, uh, we needed to buy some stuff. And so we bought a table off of Facebook Marketplace and uh, I went uh, downtown to pick it up, downtown Edmonton. And I had just moved to St. Albert and I didn't realize how far downtown Edmonton is from St. Albert. And so I drove all the way there. It was wintertime. It was cold. And uh, as I got there, picked up the table. This was in rush hour. It took me a really, really long time and took the table home put it into uh, the place where we want it to be. We assembled the whole thing, and we realized we hated it. And so it was like, oh, my gosh, I did all of this work for nothing. It was a bad trade, right? If you guys follow the Oilers, the Oilers sometimes make bad trades. Seems like more often than not, they're making bad trades. Now, the question is this. I'm trying to jog our memory. You guys ever made a bad trade before? The question is this. Why do we do it? Why do we make bad trades? Because no one ever starts out seeking, you know what? I really, really want to lose something right now. Like, I would just absolutely love to waste my money. Like, no one starts out by saying, I want to make a bad trade. But the reason that we make bad trades is simply this. We believe at a time for a moment that what we are bringing in will be better than whatever is going out. That's how we make a trade. We believe that whatever we're taking in will be better than what is going out. Now, what I want to do today, and the reason we're calling this message the sex trade, is because I believe in our culture, in our day, one of the things that we have done when it comes to God, and this is kind of the whole premise of this series, when we are worshiping and following counterfeit gods, we are trading God for something else. And I would say perhaps the most predominant thing that we have traded as a culture and a society for God is sex. Sex, sexuality, relationships, gender, all of these things in our culture have kind of replaced God. And what I want to say today is that when we do that, it's a bad trade. It's a bad trade. Can you guys say bad trade? I need need you guys to wake up. It's a bad trade. And so what I want to do, and we're going to study the book of Romans, because Romans and Paul are saying essentially this. All counterfeit gods are bad trades. Now, I think that of all the things we're going to talk about in this series, I would wager that perhaps out of all of them, sex is the most powerful. And if you don't believe it's the most powerful, I would at least say it's the most prevalent in our culture. And in our society, it is a thing that most of us at some point in our life will trade for God. And I just think that today's message is going to be so useful and helpful for the culture that we currently live in. And um, I say that to say, I think it's going to be relevant. Um, I hope that I feel like I'm up in your business. 
in these messages, and truth be told, it's, it's two weeks, and so it, it's going to get a little more heavy next week. Uh, this week, you probably won't get that offended. You might. Um, but next week, you'll definitely get offended, so it's going to be good. Um, so Romans is what we're going to study today, and just the context of the book of Romans. Romans was written by a man named Paul, and uh, he, he's writing to a church. Now, one thing someone asked me, they said, hey, how come at church you talk about Paul so much? Like, is Paul like, just as important as Jesus? Um, and I'm like, no, but Paul did write over half of the New Testament. And so when we study the New Testament, which is all about Jesus, Paul has written over half the books. So there's a chance whenever we study the New Testament, Paul will come up as today. Paul wrote the book of Romans. And um, again, he's writing to a culture that I think is similar to ours in that it is sex-saturated. That's kind of the context. Make sense? You guys ready to study this thing? All right, so Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that the people are without excuse. So this is a really rich passage of Scripture because the essence of what it is saying, it's saying since the creation of the world, God who is invisible who we have never seen, through all that he has done, has actually made himself visible. That's kind of the essence of what he's saying. You see, one question a lot of us ask is this. Maybe you've asked it, or you've had a friend that's asked it. It says, if God was truly real, like if there was a God, why wouldn't he just kind of open up the sky and say, hello, here am I? Like, come on, if God is real, why doesn't he just do that? Now, I could argue like 2,000 years ago, he did come down to earth in the form of Jesus, but like you weren't there 2,000 years ago. So today, it's like, Harrison, if God is real, if God really wants to get my attention, if he really wants all of us to believe, why doesn't he just make himself known? What Romans chapter 1 verse 20, what Paul is saying, he's saying God has made himself known. How? Through all of creation, everything that we see, through the sky, through the mountains, through birds, through animals, through your little fur babies, everything that we see in all of creation is a picture of the creator. God has revealed himself through, through all of creation. And the grandeur, the, 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 the absolute top of all of his creation, the pinnacle, is us as people, us as humans. The Bible lets us know that, that man and woman, we were created in the image of God. And so all of creation points to God. But us as people, we are above creation. We are made in the image of God. And so literally, when we understand Romans 1 verse 20, what he is saying, he's saying when we look into each other's eyes, when I see another human being, I am actually seeing the work of God. God is revealing himself through us. I've said it before and I'll say it again, but when I understand and I see my children, to me, they are the greatest proof that there is a God. We have um, three kids and Judah is, is the little boy that was just born. And Judah is, uh, in, in the scientific terms, what is known as a singleton. There's only one of him. And uh, you guys are like, what does that matter? Um, so with singletons, uh, you kind of really don't see them until they're born, assuming they're healthy, right? You kind of have one, two ultrasounds, and all of a sudden they're here. And one thing that can happen is that when you don't really see them, at least especially for guys, it's like out of sight, out of mind, all of a sudden they're here. 
So yeah, that's how it always goes for everyone. Nine months, here we go, baby, boom. Uh, but one thing that was really eye-opening for me was uh, before we had a singleton, we had twins. And when we had twins, you want the scientific term? No. Um, <laughs> when we had twins, uh, one thing that was different as opposed to with Judah um, is that they're labeled high risk. And so we literally had um, over 30 ultrasounds. So we saw them like, kind of like from the moment they were conceived to the moment they came, we saw them pretty much every week or every two weeks. And uh, it was really crazy because at least for me, like I learned a whole bunch of stuff. And one of the things that I learned is that really, like they're not a human when they're born. They're a human pretty much from conception. Like you're there every single week and you're like, wait a second, they're like 14 weeks old, but they, like, they look like full little babies, like really small but like they're fully there. And so every single week, I'm, I'm learning all of these things. They're doing these chromosomal tests, so on and so forth. It's like this week, the baby is learning to hear. This week, their hair is growing. And, and you're seeing it up close and personal. And so through, during that whole process, what it did for me is I was able to see it up close. I was like, wow, this is the handiwork of God. What's happening in there is a whole not anything to do with me. Like I did a little something. And it was good. <laughs> I'm talking about sex today, so. But what truly happens, humanity, you and I, we are the handiwork of God. The book of Ephesians says we are God's masterpiece. And what Romans is telling us is that when we look at humanity, when we look at each other, when I look into someone's eyes, I am seeing proof that, yes, there is a God. Has God revealed himself? Paul says, yes, he has. He says, for since the creation of the world, the invisible God has always been visible. He has never been far. He's been as close as the people are that are next to you as close as the mountains that you see, as close as the beauty of the sunsets and so on and so forth. And so to me, there is no greater existence for God than children. Now, some people say, well, I know someone, he has eight kids and he's an atheist. Like, what's, what's going on? Now, what, what Paul says, he says that uh, they have no excuse, meaning they see it, but they choose to repress it. Why? What happens? And is that even true? Because some of us are like, no, Harrison, like, I think like, it's, you know, some people see it, but it's like only people that are raised in church. They're, they're the ones that see it. No one else sees it. However, um, there's been studies done by psychologists, specifically on children and how they see the world. And two studies I want to share with you guys that are super, super interesting about children and what they have found with kids, especially when it relates to the idea of God. So the first one is Paul Bloom from Yale University he did a study. What he found was this. He says, when children are directly asked about the origins of animals and people, they tend to prefer explanations that involve an intentional creator. Look at this. Even if the adults who raise them do not. So in other words, when kid are, kids are asked, where do we come from? They immediately think intelligent design. This is another study, Justin Barrett, Oxford University. He says this. He says, scientific study has shown that built into the natural development of children's mind is a predisposition 
to see the natural world as designed and purposeful and that some kind of intellectual being is behind that purpose. He continues, even if a group of children were put on an island and raised themselves, I think that they would believe in God. These are super interesting studies. The essence of what he's saying is that when children look around and they see the world, immediately something in their brain thinks there must be a God. There must be something greater. Now, the question is why? Why do children see that? Now, we could get really spiritual and say, well, the Lord hath put it in their hearts. And the knowledge of God is built into us. And I, th I think that's true in an extent, but I think there's a really even simpler explanation. Um, if you guys don't know this, I'm about to tell you, um, kids, specifically little kids, are actually like geniuses. Um, there's studies done that most kids before the age of five will test out as genius. Kids are extremely smart. And so because kids are extremely intelligent, one thing that they're able to do, I believe, is they're able to pick up on the cues of the world. They're able to see, as, as Paul says, the invisible God made visible. Why? Think about the life of a child for a moment. Everything that they see their entire lives points to the idea of a designer or a creator. You're like, what does that mean? Well, when they see a house, what do the kids learn? They learn someone built the house. When they see a car, what do they learn? Someone built the car. When they get clothes, what do they learn? Someone bought me the clothes. You guys see what I'm saying? When they see babies, where do the babies come from? They came from somewhere. And so everything that children see their entire lives leads them to believe that anything that is created has a creator. And so for a child, they cannot disconnect when someone asks, well, where did humanity come from? They don't just think they came from nothing. Why? Because all of creation doesn't come from nothing. No one sees a watch and says, wow, that just must have appeared. They know there is an intelligent designer behind the design, and children are able to see that. And so what I believe is that behind every something is a someone. And I think kids are actually more in tune to that than many times adults are. In, one, in the kind of the conclusions of these studies, Nancy Piercy, she put it so simply, she said it almost appears as if children have to, believe, have to be taught not to believe in God. Because their creation, their design points to it. Adults, we kind of live, I think many of us, with this cognitive dissonance. I'm using big words for Chase. And what a cognitive dissonance is, is really disconnecting from the reality around you. Although everything I see around me points to a creator, I'm way too smart to believe in that. Yet I'm actually contradicting all that I've experienced. Kids are intelligent enough to follow the clues of creation. And I think it's so interesting because in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, for anyone to inherit the kingdom of heaven, they must become like children. So what if what he was saying was that kids and children have a way of seeing the world clearer than even adults do. So here's the point I'm trying to make with this. Creation points to a creator. Creation points to a creator. You guys following this? Anything in creation that we see, beauty, art, love, emotion, and for the context of today and next week, sex, all created things of God point to a creator. 
Paul says it theologically. Gerard Manley Hopkins, a poet, says it beautifully. He says the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Literally, it's, it's everywhere. God is, is, is guilty for the beauty of the world. And so all of these things are to, supposed to let us know, this is important, God has revealed himself. Now, because God has revealed himself, naturally, it's like, well, shouldn't everyone see it? Don't the people just fall down and say, you're worthy of it all? Paul says, not quite. Romans chapter 1, 21, next verse, he says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Look at this. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. You want to know what he's saying? He's saying instead of following the evidence, they decided to ignore it. And God says, they claimed to be wise, but they became fools. Now, this is a scathing um, kind of attack against intellect, right? Because a lot lot of times there's like these intellectual people. They they think they know so much. Paul is saying oftentimes those that are claimed to be wise become most foolish. And I think this has played out so many times in the sciences. Because I think at the end of the day, and not all scientists are atheists, you need to understand that. There are many scientists that are believers. And pretty well every single scientist that is a believer will tell you it was the science that led them to God. Because I believe, number one, all of creation points to a creator. Guess what? Science is a part of creation. Who created science? God. And so if God is the creator of science, what should science do? It should point us back to God. And I believe it does. When you understand our universe, when you understand the fact that we are literally here, and if any part of our atmosphere, if our gravitational pull was off by just a little bit, we'd fly into space. If you understand the complexity of of DNA, of how we are formed, even if you understand the, the complexity of how our bodies work, you would say this can't just be chance. How has the world been so fine tuned for human life? Scientists call this the Goldilocks dilemma. You guys know Goldilocks? Goldilocks had three bowls of soup. One was too hot, one was too cold, one was just right. And so scientists, when they understand the universe, they're forced to ask a question, and more than ask, answer a question. Why is the world so fine-tuned for human life? And the reason it's called the Goldilocks dilemma is because they must answer, why is the world just right where we can live here? And as scientists, you have two options. Your option number one is to bow down and worship the goodness of God and say, wow, we are here by the goodness of God. Creation is revealing itself. So number one, you ponder the beauty of God. Or your option number two is this, you ponder the beauty of chance. Say, I'm just so blessed that we are so lucky that life was so fine-tuned for no reason that I can live here, that I can breathe in this atmosphere. Thank the lucky stars. You have two options. Do I see the beauty of God or do I just begin to worship the beauty of chance? Dumb luck. What Paul says is many people choose option number two. And what he says is those who claim to be wise have actually become fools and their minds are darkened. Now, you're like, Harrison, you're talking about science, like what's going on? I thought we were talking about sex today. We are, but this principle is very, very important as we understand sex. Because what I want us to understand is that creation is meant to reveal the creator. 
And so I think it's plainly seen with science, we understand that. But the same principle works for sex. If God created sex, which he did, then in it, it is supposed to point to God. But something happens when we take the created things of God and do not bring them back to God. So he continues, he says, although again, they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served, look at this part, created things rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. Amen. So all this good stuff, science, sexuality, humanity, people, relationships, all of these things are the creation of God. What Paul says, he says, instead of worshiping the creator, they began to worship creation. So this is a definition for idolatry, but it's also the road to foolishness. So you can write this down. Instead of worshiping the creator, we worship creation. This is a great definition for idolatry. Idolatry is to to follow, to serve idols. It is, I am serving creation rather than the creator. I'm serving the things of God instead of God. Now, there's like a literal name called pantheism. Pan meaning all, um, and, and literally like all things are God, right? So it's like, so mountains point to God in my belief. Uh, in pantheism, the mountain is God, right? The tree is God. <laughs> like, thank you. And, and so uh, when we talk about worshiping creation, especially in Canada, unless you have a few hippie friends, you probably don't meet a whole lot of pantheists that are just, dating, that are just you know, um, worshiping things. Uh, but what I'm suggesting today is that in Canada, we have many things of God that we worship. I think we worship science in many cases, There's a theological term for it. Trust the science. I'm not going to get into that one. I'm talking about sex today. But we do the exact same thing with sexuality. Sexuality is given to us as a gift by God. And instead of ever asking ourselves, God, what about this gift? Do you want me to see? Do you want me to understand? Do you want me to perceive? Instead, we just worship the gift. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to understand and break down this idea of creation is because one thing you learn in the book of Genesis is that all that God has created is good. I said all that God has created is good. This is really important, especially as I talk about sexuality, because a lot of times when it comes to sex within the confines of church, people have this idea that sex is bad. No, sex is good. I quite like it, because God created it, and it is a gift to us. So we need to understand that because if we don't understand that, nothing else makes sense. So fundamentally, because God created it, it's good. But where it ceases to be good and where Paul says foolishness begins is where we don't actually see God in the good. We just worship the good. And what we said in week one is that when we worship the good, when we make good things into God things, it's going to leave you in an endless cycle of dissatisfaction. 
And so although God created sex and sex is very good, sex can actually lead to your demise if it's your God because you'll end up serving something that will not give you what you're looking for. And so what I want to say as kind of we, we move towards the end of this and towards next week and, and really kind of wrapping this up, I want us to be able to see this important principle. Whenever a giver gives a gift, there's a reason for the gift. This is important. Whenever a giver gives a gift, there's a reason for the gift. Think of science. All of creation is a gift from God. Water is a gift from God. There's a purpose for it. In sex, there is a purpose for it. But what happens, again, is if we never look and ask the question, God, why did you give the gift? We'll end up worshiping the gift instead of the giver. I'll explain it like this because that was kind of a word puzzle there. Um, when, when Christy, my wife, and I, when we first started dating, uh, she, she used to wear this little ring. Uh, kind of like a little heart ring, had a little diamond in it. And when we first met, I found out the significance of the ring. It wasn't particularly nice or big or anything like that, but it had special meaning. And so what happened one day is a diamond fell out. And she was super kind of sad, like that's the end of the ring. And she put it in her room um, and kind of just left it. And so me, being thoughtful, young, in love, I decided I'm going to go sneak that ring from her room and I'm going to get it fixed. And so what I did is one day I snuck into the room when she didn't know, took her ring, I went and got it fixed, I put a diamond in it, and um, I was just super, super excited. You guys ever been there, you got a gift before? <laughs> so just ready, like, I want to see the reaction. Like, I know they're going to be so happy, it's going to be amazing. And so um, I got the ring, and the reason I knew that it was going to be good is because the gift wasn't necessarily that great, but it was thoughtful. Men, listen for a second. You want to give a good gift, just make sure it's thoughtful. <laughs> and so uh, did the whole thing, the, the, the surprise, and then I brought her the ring. And when I got her the ring, uh, she was just as happy as I thought she would be. She's like, oh, my gosh, this is so amazing. All that good stuff. It was rainbows and butterflies. Um, and we kissed and nothing more because we weren't married. Um, can I get an amen today? So it went really good, but let's just suspend reality for a moment. Imagine when I got her that ring. I put the ring in her hand, and imagine if she grabbed the ring, looked at me, nodded, and left the room. And immediately went on Instagram and said, I just got the most beautiful ring. Look at this bling. She, she went to all of her friends, and she started talking about the ring. This is the best ring I've ever had in my entire life. Look at the size of this. Look at the shine. What, what if she was so into the ring, but she never once mentioned me, never once even thought about me, never even once thought, why did I get you the ring? Imagine if she never even cared about me. I can tell you that would be devastating. And so I wonder... If what if one of the best gifts that God gives us when it comes to sex, what if many of us have never, ever stopped to even think, why did God give us this gift? What was the purpose of it? You see, here's where I'm trying to go. Sex was never meant to be God. It was only meant to point us to God. But for so many of us, we miss the signpost. And we just chase the symbol, we just chase the sign, we just chase the ring. Because what happens, we talked about this principle last week, most of us will never stop and think. 
stop and think. If there's something like sex that is so good, so powerful from God, why did he give us this gift? We don't stop and think. Now, next week, I'm really going to get into this, and I'm going to show us two things. Number one, why God gave it to us, but I'm also going to show us the devastating consequences when we turn it into a God. It's going to be good. So you're going to come back next week, correct? So I'm going to really get into that next week, but today, I kind of want to finish, and it was hard, and I know it's going to be good next week because I've already written half of it, because I cut it from last week, from this week, and taking it to next week. Um, so today, kind of where I want to land, because we need to land this plane, uh, even though it's still kind of mid-flight, but i got to get you guys home. Where I kind of want to just end is this question. What if every good thing that God has for us is not an ends in itself, but simply a sign to point us to the creator that wants to give you a good gift? Matthew chapter 7, I love this verse. This is Jesus. He says, if you then... Though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So here's what he's saying. Like, for me, I thought that was a really good gift. And maybe you guys have given really good gifts before. But the very best gifts that we as humans can give, the very, the very best things that we can do, he says, if you as evil, messed up, wicked, broken people can give good gifts, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? And so what he's saying is that whatever God gives us is better than anything that we could ever pursue, anything that we could ever do on our own. And beneath every gift is a giver that loves us. And all gifts that God gives us are meant to point back to a Father whose arms are wide open. Idolatry is to long after the things of God. And it's foolishness because the things of God are only supposed to point us to God. You guys have heard the, the term before, having, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You guys hear that? You see, a lot of us, specifically when it comes to sex, we follow this kind of train of thought that says, well, if I want to have a good uh, and healthy sexuality, I can't do it within the confines of Christianity. I can either follow what I want to do sexually I can follow Jesus. I can't have my cake and eat it too. But what I want to suggest is that in the goodness and the grace of God, God wants us to have our cake and eat it too. And what that means by that is that God does not in any way want to restrict you, but he wants to liberate you to the design that he has for the good gift that he created. And we're really, really going to break that down next week. But I want us to understand when it comes to following God, it's never an either or. It's a both and. It's both and. When I follow God, I do not give up the desires of my heart. No, no, no. I find what my heart truly longs for. It's not science or God. It's science and God. It's not sexuality or God. It's sex and God. I can have my cake and eat it too. Why? Because God is the giver of all good gifts. And all good things are from him to us as a symbol. And so I want us to, to, to think, if, there's, if sex is a symbol of the goodness of God, what must God have for me in that? If as a culture and as a society, people are worshiping it, I know it's powerful, I know it has meaning, but what might God have in a healthy version of that? And so that's what we're going to dig into next week. You guys coming back?
Okay, let's stand for a second. Jesus, I just, I just thank you for the good gifts that you give us, Lord. And I just, I just pray that today we can just see all the times we have traded things that are of you for you. And, and God, I just, I just pray that we can just have clarity, Jesus, and we can just see you. We can just pursue you, God. Just give us a healthy picture um, of what it means to serve you, to love you, Jesus. And God, I just pray for us in this, in this series that you can identify and expose things um, that we are chasing that will not give us satisfaction. So Lord, I pray for eyes to see, ears to hear this week. And Jesus, I just thank you for what you're about to do um, in our hearts. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Come on. Hey, thank you so much for listening. If you want more information, head over to kingdomchurch.ca. We'd love to get in touch with you. Until next time, take care.